Yle Podcast. This podcast series is based on my experiences while making the documentary film Who Was Felix Kirsten? The film is about Heinrich Himmler's mysterious personal doctor and the revelations that followed. The reason for making this podcast is that after finishing the documentary, well, suffice it to say that the Felix Kirsten story never really went away. Episode 10, Gut Hartzwalde, The Mystery Deepens. In Wolf's book, Kersten plays a prominent part, and so do Gut Hartzwalde and the Swedish Red Cross convoy. This is how Wolf describes the above events in a chapter entitled Heinrich Himmler's Final Orders. In the early hours of April 24, 1945, I received a telephone call from Lübeck. Himmler himself was at the other end of the line, and he was extremely agitated. He wanted me to come to Lübeck at once and bring the horoscopes which I had cast for various members of the government. I was somewhat at a loss to understand this order, since the SS was in full retreat and no vehicles were available. Himmler then told me that he had just received a message from Hartzwalde, telling him that the refugees and staff on the estate were in danger from the advancing Russian army. He wanted me to investigate this information astrologically and tell him my findings by telephone. He wanted to know whether it was better to evacuate Hartzwalde or to leave Kersten's staff where they were. Kersten's staff? Now we're learning of a newer aspect of the case. This required closer scrutiny. Did the convoy come to Gut Hartzwalde to rescue not near-death prisoners, but remaining SS personnel, soldiers, German refugees fleeing the advancing Russians, as well as Kersten's own staff? Previously, Kersten had always led Himmler to believe that the Russians were harmless, maintaining that if he instructed his estate employees to fly the Swedish flag, nobody there would come to any harm. Meanwhile, however, the people in Hartzwalde must have had some misgivings, for they had been told by refugees from the eastern provinces what havoc the Russians had created during their advance. In the light of this information, I asked Himmler to arrange for trucks to be sent to Hartzwalde at once to transport the staff and the refugees on the estate to Hamburg or Schleswig-Holstein. By then, no German trucks were available, but there was a chance that the Swedes, who had sent large numbers of Red Cross trucks and buses to evacuate prisoners and refugees, might be persuaded to make the trip. At Lübeck, where the Swedish Red Cross had established their headquarters and where Himmler now was, it would be a relatively simple matter to set this operation in motion. As a result of these initiatives, a convoy of trucks laden with refugees and the members of the Hartzwalde staff arrived at Lübeck on the evening of April 25th after a long and dangerous journey. Near Schwerin, where the convoy was attacked by low-flying aircraft, three of the Swedish personnel were killed and several vehicles damaged. Upon arrival, the refugees were accommodated in quarters furnished by the Swedish Red Cross. Now, a question arises. Do the Swedes have more information about those events described by Wilhelm Wolf? Good morning. Hey. There has been more than meets the eye going on. There have been activities more than just uh, the activity that is needed for a health uh, practice. I think I have read that book 20 years ago, actually. <laughs> when I was looking at it now, it was in a totally different light. Yeah. So I didn't remember, for example, the detail that Felix Kirsten had his own stuff. 
would, would be very interesting to find out something more from the Swedish archive, particularly about those trucks who visited Kudhartsva. How many trucks, how many people they were rescuing. There should be the names as well. This could have been something which is uh, not uh, recorded in any books. Yes, that, that is possible. That almost very likely. <laughs> I, I think so too. To date, I have not come across any reference to the Guthardsvalde events in any of the Swedish accounts of the White Buses operation. I told John Bernstein about the book. Have you been reading the Wilhelm Wolfs? Yeah, I read. Uh, you know, I mean, if you <laughs> if you read Wolfs' description, it tells you one thing. Yeah. That Hartsvalde was some kind of uh, a big complex. Exactly. <laughs> where, uh, you know, where so many things happening there. It's not a home, I mean. <laughs> yeah. So you can imagine the place. There were a lot of things happening. Wilhelm Wolf was living there. And then there have been those Jehovah Witnesses uh, who have been working there. And then there has been those SS guards. They are talking about this stuff. What does it mean? And how many people? And, for example, that they are speaking about the Red Cross convoy of trucks, which was picking up the staff and the refugees there. Yeah. This is a, one question we can uh, ask uh, from the Swedish archive, that uh, can we get some more details about those? Or you can say, are there any records arriving at Hartsvald in addition to the uh, visits to the various other places from Sachsenhausen to Ravensburg and so on, so But one thing is that what was the reason why those bunkers, they had to blow them before the Russians came? One of that is the uh, munitions, which which is understandable. You know, I mean, you don't you don't leave it behind. The second one is that whatever there was else was stored around uh, in those bunkers. Yes. But uh, Wolf, the things that he mentions uh, there, which are not particularly significant as far as the truth goes, I mean, the fact that Elizabeth Lubin is the manager of the estate. And he he also called her... Sister. Kirsten's sister, yes. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, there's a difference between uh, Schwester and Tante. I mean, you exactly. know, especially, you know, with that auntie <laughs> yeah, yeah. thing, we could be, you know, anything. In the Indian uh, parlance, I mean, in the society, you know, any f good friend of the family, a female is called an auntie, not, yes. um, not you know, as such. So, <laughs> lots of things. Yes, and also that the Kirsten had a fancy apartment in a very good location in Berlin, which was... Uh, was confiscated from a wealthy Jew. Also, the wolf says that uh, Gesten had been richly rewarded yeah, by Big Himmler. Big Samson Schellenberg has been unhappy about that. Do the Swedish archives, open ones or still sealed, contain information about the goings-on in Guthardsvalde, which seemed to be a, quite a busy place as the end was nearing? But let's go back to the white buses later. Let's summarize a bit of the certain anomalies about Guthardsvalde. Felix Kersten says in his memoirs that he had bought the estate in 1936 with the money he had earned treating influential people in Holland and Germany. On the other hand, there were some rumors that Kersten got the estate as a present from Himmler. Himmler's adjutant, Grothmann, is the source of that claim. 
Walter Schellenberg, the head of SS counterintelligence, provides yet a third version in his memoirs, where he says that Kirsten bought the estate with his own money, but Himmler gave him more land as a present later. This kind of makes sense, because what we now know is that the nearby bunker complex belonged to the SS and was later incorporated inside Kirsten's private property. Over 150 hectares of land. The document I sent you yesterday about that uh, Kirsten's father from Dorbat has given him 35,000 guldens so that he can buy land in Brandenburg where he has born, because Friedrich Kirsten was born in Estonia. I know. It, it makes absolutely no sense. One of Felix Kirsten's own versions, I mean that if you're lucky enough to be a polyglot, you would find a number of differing versions, one of which states that Kirsten was a prisoner in his own house and he and the whole place were closely guarded to prevent a chance of escape. On Himmler's direct order, on the other hand, we also know that Kirsten himself belonged to the SS, and the astrologer Wilhelm Wolf, at that time living in Gutharzwalde, says that Kirsten had his own staff in Gutharzwalde. Add to it the information about the bunker site having a power system of its own, and also supplying Gutharzwalde, we can deduce that the whole complex was independent of the official electrical grid. This arouses the big question. What was going on there during the war? And who, in reality, was Felix Kersten. Was he a prisoner who, like Wolf, had to tend to the physical, mental, and psychological well-being of Himmler? Or was he a highly placed secret Nazi, entrusted with vast missions, such as establishing an espionage base in Stockholm and carving a secret channel of communication with the Western allies so that they can still save their skins? We had started from a theory about Felix Huberti, who had escaped a murder charge in Halle to Estonia, and there taken on a new identity, that of a dead soldier of Estonian origin, one Felix Kersten. Huberti Kersten got Finnish citizenship in record time with the help of some Finnish and Estonian officers of the Pohjan Poyat Freikorps unit, another paramilitary slash mercenary army, or, if you will, the Finnish equivalent of the German Freikorps of which Huberti was a member. Documents show that Huberti slash Kersten joined the Pohjan Poyat when the fightings had come to an end and the units were going back to Finland. What was the reason for the Finnish officers to take back Kersten's application for citizenship? Felix Kersten had already introduced a glorious military record of service in the German army, which was so exaggerated that it seemed that someone, or perhaps a staff or writer, had had lots of fun in writing the list of outstanding merits won by this very Felix Kersten, making sure that the intended Finnish officials would swallow everything, hook, line, and sinker. Anyhow, that's why he managed to join the Finnish army and got into officer training, but was soon afterwards dismissed for forging his military record. So much for the military record and the story. So, up to this point, Kersten had no reason to hide his German background and origin. On the contrary, he was even ready to exaggerate it. We had commenced our journey by trying to find a proof that either confirms the Huberti Kersten story or disproves it. We had found more evidence backing the Huberti Kersten story than to the contrary, but the final proof is, was, still missing. 
Along the way, we discovered plenty of small details. For example, the signatures of Felix Uberti and Felix Kersten from the years 1919 and 1923. For instance, the way both persons had beautifully penned the letter F. Place one on top of the other, and they would almost look identical. Another evidence was from a book called Peace and Order, written by Ernst Ottwald in 1933. Ottwald had also been a Freikorp member in Halle in 1919. But in a later edition, Ottwald changes his mind about the charge and espouses the ideology of National Socialism already taking over in Germany, and was well acquainted with the murder case of Karl Messeberg. Earlier, Ottwald mentions in his book that one of the accused murderers of Messeberg was a certain Lieutenant Roth, alias Felix Huberti, who had escaped abroad, and over there had a career as an officer in the Finnish army, but was later reported to have been back in Germany. And then we have Wilhelm Wolf, the astrologer for Himmler and Schellenberg, drawing a portrait somewhat different from how Kersten is described in the biography by popular author Joseph Kessel as being kind, generous, warm, accommodating. In short, the kind of person one would want for a father. Wolf, who apparently knew Kersten quite well, describes his character this way. My acquaintance with Felix Kersten, one of the background figures in the dark morass of Nazi politics, brought me for the first time close to the Nazi high command. A great giant of a man who posed as a harmless masseur from Finland, Kersten had wormed his way into the highest aristocratic circles abroad and into the top strata of the Nazis. A man who posed as a harmless masseur from Finland wormed his way. Doesn't the word posed mean that somebody was not who he really was? A minor detail noted by Wolf. But isn't the life of Felix Kersten composed of many, quote, minor and negligible details? Kersten wrote that in 1917, he had, for a short while, served as an officer in the Finnish army. Afterwards, he fled to Germany to escape the Bolsheviks. But I think that you, dear listener, have already learned that Kersten came to Finland in 1919 and had to leave because he was sacked and that his military rank was stripped off. It is also interesting that Walter Schellenberg describes Kersten as being originally a German who got the Finnish citizenship at some point in his life. But Kersten himself was trying hard in his memoirs to avoid mentioning his German background. Why? Why would one have to keep changing the story of his background and, in most instances, even lying about it? I think that it's only so if you have something to hide. This is Jos Ferrand speaking. Hi. Hey, is it convenient for you now? Yeah. Okay, I did read your message from yesterday. Yes. I think I have two directions that I'm putting energy in. I had received permission from the National Archives here in the Netherlands to look into the older files that made him uh, decorated by the government. Yes. And then there is a second thing. There recently has appeared a book about one of the highest in rank uh, ladies in the Netherlands who uh, joined the Dutch National Socialist Party. And she was very close to uh, Himmler. She mentions in one of her letters, because she knew uh, Felix Kersen also, that at the end of the war, uh, large amounts of letters in the archives of Kersen has been moved uh, via Sweden to uh, England. Okay, but that's interesting. And uh, the day of today, that the original uh, Kersen archives uh, will be found and will be published. 
Nou, dat is wat de boek zegt. The author is a serious man. I'm trying to reach him. And then I saw your words. And then I was thinking, what was the purpose of getting a hardware empty when the Swedish convoy was there? Was it only for employees and, and the people who work there? Or, or was it also to remove the arcades of, uh, from the casting? Yeah, no. I don't know. That's that's something which should be later on investigated because the bunker site, which we saw and which was on the on the good Hartswall area, it was huge. And it's all belonged to Felix Kersten. And it was yes. also uh, run by SS. So there must have been something. It is so peculiar. Why would the Red Cross convoy put physicals uh, available to go to the Hartsfeld? They were not interested about the Jehovah Witnesses. They left them there. They probably were picking the SS personnel and their families yes. from Wolfsburg which is close to the Kurt Hartswald. Actually, it's more or less the same thing. In the Swedish archives and the Red Cross archives, there are no mention about this separate convoy through Kurt Hartswald, which is also interesting. It's, it's the same trip when you are reading the Wilhelm Wolf's testimony. Yeah. It's about the same trip, but in the Swedish archives, there's nothing about this separate troll. But do you know where in England they took over? No, I, mean, I, I read it last weekend. The first thing I'm trying to do now is to get in touch with uh, the author. That wouldn't be too difficult. And then I yeah. want to know what the sources exactly are and uh, if he has... Yeah, the whole book is an, an interesting view on uh, Theosophic. Uh, I don't know the English word correctly, but Himmler was from the beginning of the 30s very interested in uh, all that has to do with uh, anthroposophy, the theocracy, theosophy. He was very involved in the Oxford conversation. Do you know what that means? I don't know. I... Yeah, the Oxford movement. I don't know what uh, is that. That's from the beginning of the 30s. The Oxford movement, and there was a movement who tried to uh, connect anthroposophy and theosophy with the national socialism. Okay. And Himmler was involved in these forces from yes. the beginning of the 30s. Yes. Kerstin was involved in that. The Dutch Queen Wilhelmina and the Dutch Queen Juliana was involved. That is public known uh, knowledge. That's interesting. And, yes, and that could make the link with uh, Kerstin, who is in the same atmosphere, that could explain a lot about that Kerstin and Hima and these people uh, were united in one way or another. Yes. But the main thing is, if there is a real Kerstin archive yes. uh, that is uh, circling around somewhere, that would give a, uh, quite another view probably on uh, what he really was. Exactly, and a lot of answers. The podcast is directed and realized by Arto Koskinen. Written by Arto Koskinen and John Bernstein. The voiceover of Arto Koskinen is dramatized by Trent Pansy. Sound design and music is made by Kimmo Vantinen.